Welcome to the Asking Why podcast. Our goal is to get to the root issues of systemic problems using a theological and psychological lens. We hope you enjoy. Putman Restoration is a proud sponsor of the Asking Why podcast. Putman Restoration specializes in commercial disaster services, including water damage, fire, smoke, mold, and storm. Their goal and desire is to get your properties up and running as soon as possible after disaster strikes. Hospitals, schools, hotels, and large municipal buildings. Malls, churches, and large commercial properties are their specialty. Manage properties nationwide? No problem. Putman Restoration Services, their clients nationwide. They are strategically partnered with elite restoration companies throughout the U.S. and Canada, giving their clients resources during disasters where normal companies would be tapped out. Trust the professionals at Putman Restoration when disaster strikes. Visit them online at www.putmanrestoration.com or give them a call at 318-453-5029. Welcome to the Asking Why podcast. I'm your host, Clint Davis. And I have a special treat today for myself, like I always say, when I get to have guests on that I love and that I learned from um, and that I've listened to for for tons of years and read and followed, um, it makes me super excited. So even if nobody ever listens to this, I'm excited to get to talk to you. Uh, Dr. Pamela King is who we have today, um, and she is a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary. She was one of my professors Um, we'll talk about that later. She's also the executive director of the thrive center, and she's an author who wrote two of my favorite books, reciprocating self and, um, thriving with stone age minds. And so I think I've talked about a little bit of those on the podcast, but Dr. King, we are super excited to have you today and uh, glad you could be with us. Clint, it is my pleasure. And it does make it all the more special that you're now the teacher and I'm in, I'm in the seat and you get to ask me questions, That's so, right. but I don't get graded, which is great, That's but right. really thank you. That's so good right. to be here. Absolutely. So catch me up. I know we were talking a little bit before, but, um, you, you've been writing, you've been, you know, a, t- a professor at Fuller. So just kind of tell us your story as long as you want that to be. And as quick as you want that to be, how did you kind of get to Fuller and become a professor and do the things that you do? Thank you. That's a, a great question. Um, I have a rather um, non-conventional journey um, into being a professor, so I could make that long, but I'll try not to make it too long. Um, As a a young kid, I thought, gosh, um, the people around me that work are doctors, lawyers, and um, business people, um, mostly men working in the community I grew up in, in the Chicago suburbs. And... uh, And then somehow I ended up in seminary, pursuing ordination in the Presbyterian Church, and then a psychology faculty member um, at Fuller. So there, there was a few twists and turns between point A and and point Z point one or wherever we are today. Um, but I um, ended up um, majoring in psychology as an undergrad at Stanford. And I, I really do say ended up. I, I really thought I was going to business. I looked at international business. I looked at some technology and science, uh, humanities degrees, and I wanted to go overseas my senior year and a a very thoughtful, logical friend said, well, let's see if if you want to go overseas over here, let's see like what requirements you have left. And then she said, Pam, do do you realize like you have finished the psych major, a psych major with except for one class. You just need one more class if you can petition these two things. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I knew I love psychology, but I really had it in my mind. Like I could never be a psychologist. It's too competitive. I would never get into psych grad school. And um, and so lo and behold, my motivation uh, to go to France my senior year 
motivated me to figure out how to be a psych major. <laughs> and um, Eleanor Maccabee, who is a legend in the developmental uh, sciences, um, was the chair of the department. And I just remember going before her and petitioning to see if I could get a Lauren Karstensen class to count for something else. But Stanford had some luminaries at the time and it all worked out. Um, and so then also uh, my plan to go into consulting or marketing got deferred a year as the year I graduated from college in 1990 uh, was a bit of a recession. You wouldn't remember that, but uh, there weren't as many jobs. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to go work with kids in the church um, until, you know, there's more jobs and I really know what I want to do with my life. Mm-hmm. So I went and worked with a very large church called now called the Menlo Church, then Menlo Park Presbyterian. Um, it was large on the order of 500 kids in the youth group, large. And um, that's a lot of kids. That, that's a lot of kids. That's a lot of kids. That's a lot of like Gatorade and, you know, skits and, <laughs> and a lot smell. of, a lot of and smell and stress. And, and despite all that and some really hard times the church went through when I was there, I um, ended up taking a seminary class, uh, one, three a year, because that was part of my compensation package as um, an intern. And lo and behold, four years later, I had finished a year of Fuller as in a Master's of Divinity. I had met a guy. I met his mom on a plane visiting Fuller. She was really nice. I got introduced to her son. And a year and two months later, we're married. And then within months, we're moving to L.A. He wants to pursue film. I figure I better finish this degree. And um, so that's how I actually got to Fuller. Wow. And once at Fuller and doing this Masters of Divinity, I kept taking electives in the School of Psychology. Um, and the then dean called me in and was like, uh, who are you? Because you keep taking classes in my school, but you're not getting a degree. So like... You either need to apply for a degree or this is your last class. Um, so I said, what degrees you got? And, you know, a Ph.D. later and several years later, um, I graduated from Fuller, both with the Masters of Divinity in pursuit of ordination in the Presbyterian Church and and um, with a Ph.D. in marriage and family studies. Mm-hmm. So I'm not a clinician. And um, along the way, um, I end up getting involved in research and a little bit of a hand of God there. And actually, when your former guest, Tina Bryson, her mom, Deborah Payne, um, was on staff at Fuller and didn't give me the job I wanted at Fuller as the head of orientation. And then I got an offer from a previous professor at Stanford to do some research with him on community in religious congregations. And that just pivoted my trajectory um, my curiosity, which I actually didn't realize I had, uh, loomed large and I kept asking questions and pursuing them in research and ended up primarily uh, the bulk of my time as a professor is allocated, has been allocated to research until about two years ago. Um, I teach less often and um, I became the executive director of the Thrive Center in 2021 and at that point committed uh to a new venture within Fuller, our leadership formation division, to not only do research, but to um, be strategically oriented and organized to translate research into resources. Um, in the case of the Thrive Center, that would actually enable people to thrive. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been a joy and a challenge to 
pivot again and and understand the science um, and art of translation um, of research so that it is accessible to people. Um, and um, in the case of the Thrive Center, it's very theologically founded and absolutely scientifically, you know, psychological science informed practices um, that enable people to thrive um, in a very specific way. Like thriving means a lot of things to a lot of people, but it means something very particular to the Thrive Center. Yeah, well, that's awesome. I mean, that's amazing that your story has taken you through all those ups and downs and um, to where you are today. I mean, we were talking before, but for listeners, um, if you're not watching the podcast or you haven't seen Pam, uh, when I went, it was 2008 when I came to Fuller. And so I remember being in my first class or one of my first classes and there being this very pretty blonde teacher. And she said, uh, I don't know about you guys, but I don't normally fit into molds. And I was like, you know, and at the time I'd been married, you know, married my wife who's a very pretty blonde girl. And we, we talk about that all the time, like just how mm. people put people in molds and categories. And I remember mm -hmm. you saying like, you know, I'm not going to be where you think I am or how you think I am. And you told us, I think a little bit of your story. And you said, for example, I like Dungeons and Dragons. And, uh, you asked everybody to raise their hand if they played Dungeons and Dragons. And so I had raised my hand like a good nerd and I looked around, there was like nobody in the room with their hand up. And so after the class, yeah. somebody from behind me came and said, Hey, my husband, you know, we had our hands up. And so we started playing D and D. And so that was just something that was like, for me, such an instant connection with you of your authenticity and just, um, just the way that you're. You're not. You break the molds in so many ways and did through that class and through the time I got to know you at Fuller. And then just as you've written, I mean, reciprocating stuff you'd already written, but, um, you know, read Thriving with Stone Age Minds, which everybody should read both of those books. Um, and I've just been so proud of, of watching you from afar over the last, you know, wow, almost two decades at this point. Uh, you know, it was just crazy. Um, crazy. <laughs> wow, that's nuts. Like four years, that'll be you know, 20 years. So anyway, I just thank you so much for all that you've invested into the culture of psychology and theology and, mm. and paving the way for me to really do what I do and focus on this integration stuff that we talk through. So anyway, I just wanted to say that, uh, cause that is something when I, when I see you or think of you, that's, that's always authenticity is one of those things that just always hits me. Thank you. And I, I can get myself in a little bit of trouble with those authentic, spontaneous comments at times. <laughs> but Clint, I, I have to say, like, I literally, it's almost, it's become a ritual after all these years of teaching. But I always have this moment in, in the last section of um, the last class gathering of, of a quarter. Um, and I, I really have this imagination, like, and I experience it of like imagining all the lives that have been impacted and will be impacted through the students in my class. And, and I mentioned I don't teach a lot, so I barely get to touch a student's journey at Fuller, mm -hmm. um, you know, for 10 weeks plus a final. And so I, I know it's like I, I am honored to be a very small part of this journey of preparation and equipping people, hopefully, and inspiring them and empowering them to go out and change lives. Never in Travis Auditorium, and I remember your class well, um, did I sit there and imagine... And Clint is going to be podcasting and not only have a practice where he's transforming lives, but he is going to be working with congregations and he is going to be podcasting because we didn't know what podcasting was in 2008. No, we didn't. Um, and so it's just, no, it is a true joy for me to see how you have been such a creative steward um, of your training and life experiences and your knowledge and your gifts 
and and leveraging that in such beautiful and effective ways to to enable people to be more whole. Um, and and ultimately, thriving is is really about wholeness. Um, so so thank you for your work, and it makes my work worthwhile. Absolutely. Well, that's awesome. I love the full circleness of this stuff. Well, let's let's Absolutely. get into thriving. So all right, you know you and I, and I'm interested to hear this, and I've read a little bit, but so. Did Thrive, the Thrive Center come out of the work of thriving with Stone Age Minds? Where did the, where did the initial thriving uh, word come from? And then kind of tell me that story of how that, how that led through these things. And then we'll get into the circle and the different parts of the thriving. I'd love to dive into to that stuff. Awesome. Well, um, so the Thrive Center actually evolved out of a research lab that was started at Fuller in the mid-90s. So I guess it was like I, I was part of that founding group. It was called Very Sexy, the Center for Research on Adolescent, Child and Adolescent Development. <laughs> and we called it CIRCAD for short. And our nickname, we called ourselves the Nerd Dogs. It was like Jim Furrow oh, and nice. Wagner. So great fun, extraordinary I love learning. Jim. Oh, love Jim, love Jim. Um, he was my advisor, so um, and so grateful for Linda and Jim's leadership in that. It was very formative as a student. Um, so we did a lot of research on what was then a very new area of study called positive youth development. Um, and that was a movement that started with practitioners, like youth workers, who got sick of like scholarly's measurement, scholars' measurement of youth, because they would, you know, a healthy kid was a kid who was not addicted, not kicked out of school, not violent, uh, not pregnant. And that's what a healthy kid was. And, and there was a group of us who started convening saying, this is absolutely an insufficient vision mm -hmm. of a healthy young person. And so words like thriving started to be thrown around. Um, I was a part of a research group with Jim and Linda, also Bill Damon at Stanford, Rich Lerner at Tufts, Peter Benson at the Search Institute, and um, we formed what was called the Thriving Indicators Project. And we really set out over seven years to like measure indicators of thriving. Mm -hmm. And um, it was a very humbling project. We all learned that there aren't necessarily benchmarks. It's not about the grades you get. It's not about your performance athletically or how many school clubs. Um, but it has more to do with how effectively you fit in your context right. and how you change over time. And so we all ended up developing like our own strands of research out of that. And, and my work in the reciprocating self really formed how I entered that project and, and have continued to pursue that lane of a telos, a, a purpose or a goal of being human, of becoming relational reciprocating selves. And so my understanding of thriving has so much to do with adaptive growth over time mm -hmm. as we move towards our telos or, or our purpose. Now, since I had you in the classroom, there's actually been quite a bit of research on um, human purpose, like how people live out their purpose or calling. Um, and in my conceptualization of, conceptualization of telos has to do with like us becoming who we are uniquely, mm -hmm. like using our gifts. Like you, you know, started as a therapist and you've learned like, oh, these gifts of engaging people and, and probably curiosity can be used in a podcast. So you like 
who you are evolves, how you behave, what you yeah. do evolves, but you probably are pursuing some core passions and gifts that you have. Um, but our, our thriving isn't just about us growing into our strengths, which is really important, but it is also growing more deeply into our relationships um, because we know being relational is at the essence of being human. Mm -hmm. So we have this individual growth, relational growth. And then I also argue that we have this aspirational growth. Um, and as Christians, we talk about um, becoming more like Jesus or becoming conformed to the image of God in Christ. Right. So no matter who we are, <laughs> we're trying to become more like Christ yeah. um, in our relationship with God. So, you know, I don't want to make any assumptions about you, but often people who are really jazzed and excited and motivated to pursue a purpose, you know, in the name of God or to help others, we might get a little out of balance. There's a little bit of fervor. Absolutely. And so we might pursue that individual and help others vehemently, but we forget about things like Sabbath and rest and compassion and mercy. I don't have the gift of mercy. I could never be a therapist, um, <laughs> but we're still called, <laughs> still called to be merciful and kind. So that third aspect of thriving involves this kind of moral, ethical, and spiritual growth. Yeah, that's so. beautiful. Yeah, I think some of the, you're 100% right. Um, we were talking about this this morning, actually. There's five or six guys who meet, some of the biblical counselors on my staff, and, and we just confess sin and talk through where we're at and really dive into like our heart postures and our issues and so that we don't do that, right? So that we don't end up mm -hmm. pursuing mm -hmm. helping others and be incongruent mm -hmm. with who we actually are in our marriages yeah. and with our kids mm -hmm. and all those kind of things. Mm. And, but I, you know, definitely falling in that trap of I'm a two on the Enneagram. And so, you know, I want other people to feel loved, which is mm. great. And I, I have tons of mercy. It's an easy thing for me to have mercy, but a lot of times in my unhealth, that can be so that I'm loved mm. so that I validate mm. that I'm good because mm. I don't feel good enough. And so, yeah, mm. definitely working through that in therapy and through biblical counseling and my own work as a person, you know, mm. I think when I'm thriving is when that's balanced, when, you know, I'm confident in who I am, regardless of how somebody else feels about it. Um, right. and I'm not, you know, Galatians starts out with, are we worrying about other people's opinions or God's opinion? And, mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's when I'm thriving is when I'm typically like, well, no, I know who God says that I am and the power he's bestowed upon me with the Holy spirit. And, and, and so if I'm doing that, then I'm more likely to, to be on God's path and be following his will instead of having yes. my own agenda. So yeah, I love that. And I loved reciprocating self. Uh, it was one of my favorite books at Fuller because of that relational piece because mm -hmm. of just the breakdown of looking at the Trinity and looking at God and his relational self and his reciprocating self, and then taking that and going, okay, then we should be able to have these thriving relationships that reciprocate. And, and this is what we're made for. And, and then I love so many people in my office that I'm working with as a clinician. It's like, helping them to to look at epigenetics and look at their generational mm -hmm. sin and look at the mm -hmm. things that have happened over time mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and then look at their personalities and say, hey, listen, yes, we're all supposed to be striving to look like Jesus, but that doesn't mm -hmm. mean we're all going to look the same, you know, exactly. that we're all these little cookie cutter yeah. things. And, and so when you're, th I always call it just the Imago Dei, right? The image of God, when you're walking in that congruent image of God, it's going to look mm -hmm. very different from everybody else, but man, Absolutely. there's going to be some themes that are that are hitting you know in all of us so i think that's i mean just amazing work absolutely no i always am saying like you know 
Jesus in you looks a lot like Clint. Mm -hmm. And, you know, hopefully Jesus in me looks like Pam because I would not look good with a beard. <laughs> right. <laughs> I wouldn't look good with long flowing hair. Um, <laughs> well, it might work for you. Yeah, that's right. Um, but yeah, it's, and you were asking about the Thrive Center. So Thrive ended up pivoting out of CIRCAD um, and has attempted to develop resources kind of historically, but the way we were structured was very faculty heavy. And so a few years ago, we made some structural financial decisions to allocate part of our endowment towards staff um, and creatives that could help think about user interface and design and do things so that we could get materials out. So we now have a much more quote unquote user oriented website that previously was more for academics, but we offer spiritual practices that have, um, that are backed and informed by psychological science. So they might be like Christian contemplative exercises, but they might have some recommend some longer pauses because we know silence and regulating your brain is really good. And mm -hmm. so we might infuse some of the mindfulness science with some contemplative practices, or some might be more, you know, psychologically informed that are reflections on your strengths um, to help you identify your purpose. Um, and our least recent iteration of resources is, is this new podcast, the with and for podcast. And that, that comes back to the reciprocating self because mm -hmm. we thrive when we are with people and when we are for one another and for greater purposes for God. So we thrive with one another in God and, and for one another in God. Like thriving isn't an individual, you know, self-help project. Yeah. It does involve self-care because like you said, there's that dialectic, you know, the reciprocating self is a differentiated holding, becoming whole self and a self that is connecting deeper and more intimately and losing itself and others. But it's, it's a dialectic. It's not you, not me, or, you know, me, not you. Mm -hmm. And, and that's a hard balance. Ooh. And I, you know, I think, if I'm honest as a parent, you know, there are seasons where I'm like, who's Pam? Where's Pam? <laughs> Where's mom? <laughs> yeah. Like it is, you know, or, you know, or in book writing, like those are moments where um, some of my, you know, relationships that keep me going or practices are like might might languish a little bit, but we do have extremes, but our, our call, I really believe to image God most fully Imaging God is active. It, it involves relating, uh, relating to ourselves, relating to others, and relating to God. And that's um, really important. When we first wrote that in the first edition, that was pretty darn novel. There is a huge science of relationships now. And oh, yeah. you know, social or Trinitarian understandings of the Trinity are much more common, uh, popular now and common than, than they were back in the day. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I remember, you know, it's funny, almost 20 years later, I had Dr. Bryson on and we were talking about, um, you know, the things that you learned 15 and 20 years ago that kind of really get into your brain and like start to form philosophy and thought processes. And then you look up 15 years later and then you're coming up with ideas and that you feel like are original, but you're like, I know yeah. this came from somewhere. And then I hear it and I'm like, Oh, you know, I heard that 15 years ago. Or I read that. I mean, even from like Carl Jung or something like, you know, it's like yeah, it's, right, you, you, right. you get these things. And it's like, there's nothing new under the sun. And yet one of the things I've really had to master is going, yeah, but my sphere of influence and my mm -hmm. image of God is using my story and this information and making it my mm -hmm. own. And that doesn't mean you're mm -hmm. 
stealing it or copywriting it or, you know, in the world yep, that we live right. in, people do that. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Um, it's it's crazy to see how you can influence all the people that I know have never read Reciprocating Self. You know what I mean? Like all, right. so many of my clients, I've read, you know, No Drama Discipline five times and I use it with our kids and I love it. But most of my clients, if not, I'd say 85 to 95% of them have never even heard of it. And I'm like, right. how is this a thing? Like, how is this person who I think is a, these people that I think are geniuses mm. that their mm. works was so impactful to me? No one in my sphere of influence even knows about it. And so it's like, okay, mm. so how do I, how do I write and teach in my influence? Because they'll listen to me, but they're not going to listen to somebody they don't know and they're disconnected with. So I think all of that goes into what you're saying, which is this: we have to. We think so little of ourselves sometimes, I think, and we have so much shame mm-hmm. and so much trauma mm-hmm. and, and we're not integrated and we're not differentiated mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. people, the average person doesn't believe they can do anything. Right. And it's like, you have right. so much power within your life and your story and your testimony mm-hmm. to influence mm-hmm. everybody around you if mm-hmm. you would just, you know, believe it. Be yourself, yeah. honestly, just be yourself. And, you know, to me, that is so much of thriving is like, you know, and I wrote this in the reciprocating self, like we're called to be ourselves, mm-hmm. not anyone else. And, you know, as a young, you had me um, when I was younger on the faculty and it was like, oh, you know, I want to be witty and profound like Jim Furrow or <laughs> wise like Cameron Lee or goofy like Jack Ballswick and profound and talk about hard things. Or, you know, it's I, I'm a people pleaser, too. It's like I, you know, in um, and also, I mean, part of where the reciprocating self came from me, which I actually wrote into a graduate paper, a paper when I was a doctoral student, was the initial iteration of it, um, was told in my tradition in the Christian church of like, you know, the cross is the symbol of Christianity, not an eye. Mm-hmm. And people should see Jesus, not you. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I'm kind of a go big or go home gal. So like, I'm like, okay, no one ever sees Pam. They got to see Jesus. That's right. And, and so my, I'm like, when I rewrite the reciprocating self, um, which there's a couple editions and, and it's showing up now in secular psychology as a telos within developmental science. Um, and Jack and I are rewriting, uh, writing a chapter right now for a new textbook. Um, I, it's almost therapeutic for me. And I literally am intentional of like, okay, you know, is the invitation right now to think about the unity, the relational aspect and how I'm relating generously and vulnerably to people um, or other specific people in general I'm feeling called to, or is this like a moment to be like, whoa, (laughs) let's take inventory and who's Pam. Yeah. (laughs) And, and, you know, who is the I in the I thou relationship. So it continues to be a powerful method device process for me oh yeah that's so good could you talk a little bit about that maybe you know five or six minutes on I think one of the things I see as a mom who you know who works and who's a professor and who's done all this amazing work I'm sure that's a struggle as much for anybody but I think there's a there is that piece of like especially in the culture in 2024 of mm. losing ourselves in being a mom and that identity. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. so just whatever whatever wisdom you have on that for any of the moms that listen to my podcast, how do they um, thrive? Well, you know, like how do you, how do you, have you, what have you struggled with and how have you found ways of thriving as you've had to take these hats off? That is a, a profound question. I'll just do a disclaimer. I'm a work in progress, right? <laughs> yeah, we all are. <laughs> but, you know, yes, we all are. Um, 
but with that, you know, in hindsight is often really helpful. Um, I, and, and it, and that is, it is a special juggling act or, you know, I was gonna say challenge, but opportunity, um, you know, in John ten ten, we love that Jesus said, you know, I've come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. And in and, and some days I'm like, Jesus, what does that mean as a mom? You weren't a mom. My life is very full. My cup runneth over <laughs> yeah. and empty and empty at the same time. Right. Yeah. So um, I, you know, um, I would say that and I will say develop being a developmental psychologist is helpful or has been helpful to me because there are moments like when you have an infant and um, the, as if you're the primary caregiver, that there is really a bit of losing yourself. There's not a lot of sleep. There are moments of of just, you know, of giving up all those other things. Uh, brushing teeth might become optional sort of thing Yeah. Um, to be there with your infant. That said, Winnicott, who's a favorite of mine, even though he's, you know, an older object relations theorist, talked about being a good enough mom. Yep. And even though we're supposed to, you know, create this holding environment where our babies feel safe and attuned to and that they are the world, you only are to be a good enough mom. And that babies, even one-week-year-olds, need moments of frustration. Um, that does not mean neglect, but we do not have to be perfect and we cannot sacrifice ourselves completely we are you know parenting is a marathon and in order to continue to give to our families our children's our partners our husbands um our communities we do have to pace ourselves but there are times where you know especially those early years where where you know infancy really does demand a lot um and i i think it's a beautiful thing in our society today that we often talk about caregivers and that fathers are so much more empowered um, and welcomed into that intimate journey of parenting an infant. And that's such a powerful thing for a couple to be supported in that way. So I really you know, encourage um, young moms to welcome their husbands. And I, I know it's a temptation to be like, I got this. I'm superwoman. I'm super mom. I can do it. I can stay up all night. I can breastfeed. I can do this. But it's really important for dads to bond with their babies. It's important for their babies. And when we get into that kind of messianic mother role, that that's not great for the child, the marriage, or ourselves. Um, so there is there is some holding on to self in that. Um, I also think you know, as a working mom, um, I actually did not work full time since 2003 when I had my first child until nine, uh, 2021, mm. so two years ago, um, when I took over the executive uh, director position. I worked half-time for a very long time, um, and then I went two-thirds time, and like maybe in 2016 or 2014, I went three-quarters time. So that was a way that I have managed um, this, this life. <laughs> yeah. And um, I try and attend to... Um, a, a big part of my work since I've we've interacted is actually studying joy. Um, and I think, again, that might have been a bit of reclaiming. I didn't do that more until my kids were. I started that work in 2015. So my youngest was eight and there was a little more space for mom's joy. Yeah. Um, but I was in a position where I had this grant and, and was spending time thinking, studying joy. And it was like, okay, what is, what is joy? I mean, that's a whole nother theological question, but ultimately I think it has to do with our deepest loves mm -hmm. and it's 
our, 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 our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors in response to our deepest loves. And so our children might be that. Um, it might be um, color or arts or nature or friends or writing about evolutionary psychology, um, <laughs> or maybe not. Um, but moms need to hold on to what brings them joy. Um, all busy parents, who, all therapists who are caregivers, all doctors, frontline workers need to hold on to what brings them joy. And, and joy is so powerful because it's not just our thoughts like that matter. We need those positive emotions because they are so good for our brain mm -hmm. and they you know you know an anxious brain is very narrow and not able to be creative and make decisions a relaxed brain sees much more broadly has a much more expansive and whole sense of self um can easier more easily differentiate the self from the world around them and so those emotions are important to feel and it's weird you know as Christians, like we talk about joy, but if, if you went to Fuller Library and like pulled out all the books on sin and all the books on joy, ah, uh -huh, yeah, not even a competition. That's right. Um, but although joy is a fruit of the spirit and when we talk about like catechisms and creeds, at least in the Presbyterian church, yeah, the first question of the shorter Westminster catechism is what is the chief end of humankind? And the response is to glorify God and enjoy God forever. Mm -hmm. it's good. I was never taught that. I was never taught that. Yeah. We recently switched churches this last year and <clears throat> are going to more of a, a liturgical church. And it's been really, really mm. fun and awesome. And we just mm. did like the first advent with our kids and uh, this year and did liturgies every day and, and we're homeschooling. Mm -hmm. And so we're doing liturgies every morning and, and mm. but making them very meaningful and intentional and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's been one of the things that like reclaiming historical Christianity in my life has been really, really fun and in our mm -hmm. marriage. And, but it is those things. It's, it's more about like, what are we for? What is God doing? Who are we in Christ? Then mm -hmm. this heavy emphasis, like you said on don't do these behaviors. Right. And I think, right. I think, uh, you know, behavior modification in Christianity has been such a heavy toll on the culture and on the church. And, mm -hmm. you know, instead of, yeah, let, let's far, let, let, let's focus on the heart posture, like Jesus said. You know, like Jesus is constantly like, I mean, I obviously want to see fruit in your life and the behaviors, but I'm not really focused on your behaviors. If you give two pennies or you give ten million dollars, if your heart posture is not right, that's the problem. And so I think so much of thriving is for moms, for dads, to you know, quiet the noise and go. You know, where is my identity? Is it in my kids? Is it in my work? Is it in financial mm -hmm. stability? If mm -hmm. it is, well, no wonder I'm constantly stressed out and anxious. And right. Right. and look, we could all you know, do hours of podcasts as men and as women of the things that are that have to get done no matter what, right? So I can hear the moms cringing at relax and chill out and and slow down and and they're going no, Clint, I have this to do. I have this to do. I have this to do. Who else is going to do it? And if I don't do it all hell's going to break loose in my house. You don't understand. And I'm like, I hear you. We're not saying that's not true, but in the midst of that, you and who you are as a mother and, or who you are as a father, God cares about immensely. Amazing. And 
it's in that connection with him, in that reciprocation with him, that you're going to find your peace and your joy while changing the diapers, while doing the taxes, while going and serving, you know, other people, um, because you're being brought with it. Right. And I think that goes back to what you said about that idea of like, you're not here. It's just Jesus. I think sometimes we have to realize like Jesus wants us to bring our full self with us so that Mm -hmm. he can Mm -hmm. experience life with us. And that is part of what he did with himself within the Trinity. And so, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I hope people hear, at least I'm hearing, you know, it's, it's, it's a reminder to slow down. And I think in 2024, if we don't teach people to do that well, and really in a nuanced way, then they get lost in the, in the new world that we're in, which is just go as fast and as hard and as far as you can go and lose yourself. Absolutely. No, I think that's really powerful. And I think like the whole science of mindfulness is so helpful to enable us to be more present to those things that we're doing, whether it's the mundane changing the diapers. I remember in seminary, a friend said to me, um, that she didn't have as much time for her quiet time with the little kids and and bemoaning that. She's like, yeah, but I just decided to do my prayers of confession when I changed diapers. (laughs) Just seemed appropriate. Yeah. (laughs) And I thought that was great. But I also want to push back on that and say, like, it's one thing to say, oh, yeah, be yourself, be present to changing diapers and doing the dishes and school pickup lines and busyness and all this. But, But there is also the what is uniquely you? And what are those things that bring you uniquely joy? Yes. Um, that, yes, are relational, are for others, are with others, but you need to be a person, a self in that. So if you're not getting time to calm down on your own or have fun, we need both those calming, the down-regulating moments, but the up-regulating, exciting moments, um, you need support. That's really and, good. and I recognize, you know, socioeconomics doesn't always allow for support, but if there is a husband or a partner or a friend that can give you some relief to just, you know, touch base with who you are to go have fun um, that maybe isn't so heavy um, or to do something about self-expression, whether it's dance or painting or talking or blogging social media i have other issues with social media but if it's if it's used for a constructive (laughs) expression um i think that's great but i i'd love to go back to something you said please um you know you're talking about behavior management um yeah and i are behavior modification i often feel like the job the church's job too often focuses on sin management um which is just not life-giving and and when jesus managed it yeah, right, right. Done. Check off. Just done. <laughs> like, exactly. I mean, well seriously, said. you know what I mean? Like we, we could spend hours talking about it and to me, like, and yeah. we should, but it's so simple to some degree. It's just yeah. hard to believe because grace is so unfathomable to us. Absolutely. And so contemplative practices or exercises that get us in touch with those experiences of love, of recalling the miracle of grace and living into that is so powerful and if like people like what's one liner not an explanation one liner on thriving i will say people thrive when they lean into love and they live out love as themselves Mm. with and for the world and so as a person of faith you know we lean into love 
our beliefs about a loving God, um, which often, you know, our shame narratives hijack who God is. Absolutely. Uh, but we also need that love incarnated and in loving relationships around us. We should not just be fueled by our, you know, attachment to God, but we need loving and supporting people who get us and got our backs. Um, we need love exemplified in beauty and senses of belonging. We need love in lots of ways. And then living that out, like I often think of my vocation is like, I'm trying to live God's love out in the world as Pam. Mm. So how am I God's loving, redeeming, not just sustaining, but flourishing, thriving presence in the world? It's good. And, and that's, you know, so I think like we got to get love and we got to live it out. And yeah. that is a dynamic journey. And really hard to do in a broken world, but we need to do that. Yeah, because if, if our job is redeeming, right, the world, which I think it is, I think Jesus came into the world to redeem the world and then gave us the Holy Spirit to continue that work, then it's mm -hmm. not a status quo, right? It's not a maintaining. It's a, no. it's a redemption life. It's, it's looking at our lives and going, okay, how can we help people and how can we take back what's been stolen, you know, mm -hmm. today or yesterday or tomorrow and... Mm -hmm if we believe that in our hearts about ourselves, that Christ is a redeemer and that he's redeeming mm -hmm. us and that, you know, big word, but our eschatological view is not that we, this life sucks and doesn't matter and we are, we're saved and we just get to go to heaven, but is like theologically sound and Hey, this life is a transition into the next, right? Like what I'm doing now matters, how I treat the earth, how I treat men, how I treat women, how I impact my children is going to transition me into eternity and mm -hmm. Christ will come and redeem and restore all that fully. But man, I have a role to play through the power of the Holy spirit to also participate in that yeah. ongoing world Work. until it, until, you know, it's fulfilled. And one of the newer and I find really exciting movements in, in theology right now is, is reclaiming, what you just said till the world is fulfilled mm -hmm. and you know often as christians we kind of have a really unbiblical vision of heaven out there somewhere in the heavens like where does that come from um but there is a movement of just like in revelation of god coming back mm -hmm. and restoring his creation and so what if you know the eschatological vision is is truly the fulfillment of creation of all of creation. Oh yeah. He heaven and distinction. Earth. Yeah. In unity in Christ. And so that, you know, so many, like what I was raised with was like, yeah, you know, like actually redemption is managed sin. Like right. <laughs> just behave well. And that's redemption. That's a, a problem because that has nothing to do with thriving and flourishing yes. of, of, of coming into our fullness to glorify God. And, and we neglected the creation fulfillment part. And, you know, and here we are with issues with our environment and, and in our neighbors and in, in a pluralistic world, which, you know, in Los Angeles is unavoidable. That is our reality. And so, you know, how do I live with the compassionate and open posture of, of, of all being redeemed and all flourishing? And how am I part of that ongoing work? And I think, you know, the evangelical um, approach has been so about, you know, me and my relationship with Jesus, which is so great because 
that is so true. And it's a dialectic. And, you know, it's it's me and Jesus and me and the world and Jesus as well. And that we are in a time when um, we need to be with and for um, in a, a really broad way. And and that doesn't mean we do everything. We, we have to be ourselves and steward our gifts. Um, but we are, you know, God's workmanship. Man, I love and, that. I love that because it's interesting. There's two, there's two verses about, uh, walking in the light, right? Confession. And I think that's one of the things confessing is, is one of the ways that we're known the most to people that we love, right? We, we say, Hey, uh, here's all my mess and you know, all my mess. And then they stand there and they love you anyway. And that's when we can truly feel known because if not, then we just walk around feeling like if you only knew what I've done and you only knew what I thought, then you'd abandon me. Yes. And so there's these two verses, right? It's confess your sins to God and he will be, you know, steadfast and and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And then there's confess your sins to one another and then you'll be healed. Mm. And it's interesting that the heat, it doesn't say that the healing comes from confessing yourself to God, but to one another. And that doesn't mean that God doesn't heal you. It just means that the relational peace You can Mm -hmm. confess your sins to God all day. Mm -hmm. He knows you the most. He already knows it. And he loves you the best. He's going to be, uh, he's going to be unconditional. But when you confess yourself to another image of God Mm -hmm. and another person filled with the Holy spirit, Mm -hmm. and you get to see that Holy spirit work through that imperfect vessel to love you like God. Absolutely. What a, what a bunch of healing, you know, like what an amazing experience. Mm -hmm. And that takes us all the way back to really the garden for me. I feel like everything that I'm learning this last couple of years is, is like how much it's like a return to God's original purpose with everything. And so Mm -hmm. it's, it's like Adam and Eve, you know, God creates Adam and he brings the animals in front of him and he's like, you know, deer, horse, frog, whatever he's naming them all. Mm -hmm. And it gets to a Mm -hmm. point where he's like, look, God's like, this is not, it like you need a helper you need mm-hmm. another relationship mm-hmm. right to to really image god in right. in my opinion right. to some degree mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. not just me lots of theologians uh, that are smarter right. than i am but it's like but that we forget that that was before sin right like that was before right. sin entered in the world we <laughs> needed another person to image god and to have this kind of mm-hmm. parallel reciprocating relationship so i think a lot of yeah church has taught us you all you need is God and that means right. all you need to be is in a closet or in your own thoughts or in your truck listening to worship praying go to your closet go yeah. to your prayer room and that's, your that's yeah that should be enough because you can't get anything from anybody else but God and it's mm-hmm. like okay yes that is true and also mm-hmm. God made these other human beings mm-hmm. to be in relationship with you right so that you can like see how this thing works out does that make sense more fully Absolutely. Yeah. To more fully experience it. It is so much easier to do my, you know, like confessions, like on the way to work, which is a very short commute. Um, so that <laughs> makes that minimal. But no, but to be vulnerable, you know, we, we have a lot of research on how important vulnerability is. And, you know, Brene Brown has yeah, power of vulnerability. Yep. Yeah, so thankfully good. made that rather popular and trendy, <laughs> but it's great stuff. Um, so so that's important. You know, I'd love to share with you something that the Thrive Center has done more recently Please. that would be post-year post fuller um, on-campus experience is and just based on this conversation is where it came from. So my research, uh, I guess it's I've done a lot of things, but probably the biggest emphasis has been two things. One understanding psychology of spiritual development. So what is happening happening psychologically 
as a young person is growing and learning to encounter God or whoever they're going to call their source of transcendence or have transcendent experience, what is mature, like what's a psychology of spiritual formation, essentially. The other one is what are the psychological benefits associated, correlated, impacted, influenced, caused by religion, spirituality, faith. Mm -hmm. And now when we do research, we get really technical on all of that stuff. But what I've done is actually, and we just launched a new website um, two weeks ago. So it's now on there is I've, I'm offering a spiritual health framework. And mm -hmm. it's really interesting because we don't we talk about mental health, emotional health, psychological health. Yeah. But it, spiritual And this is health. on the Thrive website? Is that what you're talking about? Yes, it yeah, is. Yeah. Okay. Can, you're talking about the wheel? It's like a lens technique. Oh, okay. Got it. Sorry. That's okay. When you said the circle, yes. Because so much. Oh, of, I like the uh, lens even better. I get that. Yeah, yeah. So it's a six, you know, because faith helps us see more clearly. Um, and so it is a lens. The graphic can be confusing, but it's got six facets. And so the six facets, there are six letters in the word thrive. Yeah, they yeah, spell thrive. Oh, there you go. Look yeah. at that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I saved you. it earlier when I was reading about it. And, um, and, I've just found this very helpful for people, like whether you're running a congregation or you're a therapist and you're engaging people in their spirituality. It may not be Christian, um, but we can think about it from different religious perspectives. But from a psychological perspective, healthy spirituality, like if you put it at the center of those facets, is love. Mm -hmm. So when we have transcendent experiences, when we experience God is beyond us, is bigger than us, is all-powerful, all-loving— that needs to be, we really want beliefs and take inventory of our beliefs to realize like it is an all loving God. So if it's like God is monitoring me, shaming me, judging me, like we know psychologically that doesn't work out. Disappointed so well in me, which is one I hear all the time. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So in like, you know, a, an example I use often, you know, we experience transcendence a lot. My husband is a 49ers fan. Not sure when you're listening to this, but they just won the national championship um, and are headed to the Super Bowl. So for him, being in Levi Stadium, you know, which not many Lions fans showed up, he thought maybe five to 10%. So it's a lot of red in that stadium and everyone is emotionally aligned and resonating and emotion contagion, all those things. It's loud, it's exciting. Adrenaline, testosterone um, is a rather transcendent experience. It's a very elevated, I am part of something so much bigger yeah. than me. Uh, so that can be a spiritual experience for some people. And others experience that in nature. And, and those things might point to an even higher reality, like the creator. Um, but we need those experiences that elevate us out of our mundane life. And so for some people, liturgical traditions do that beautifully, um, sometimes in more ecstatic, way, ecstatic ways and sometimes more in calm, realizing God is also imminent and with mm -hmm. me. Um, and then the second, the H, has to, is for habits and rhythms. And, and just like you have been talking about, like habits of confession, habits of meeting, Habits and rituals of the liturgy. I love the image of your family having, you know, liturgy in the morning, setting our intentions, offering our days to God um, in our world that, you know, is 24-7, always on. Uh, we're less affiliated with organizations and groups that have rituals, rites of passage. Like we need habits and we need rhythms 
humans thrive with mm-hmm. rhythms. It's like enough structure to let us play in between. Um, the R is relationships and community. And, you know, I think especially since COVID, we've we've all taken, you know, our faith like on our own personal roadshow, you know, like, oh, well, I'd rather go for a walk and listen to the sermon. Yeah, that can be me. Um, then show up and have to talk to people or get dressed, listen to someone. But we need like you were just saying, we need to be present to one another. Mm-hmm. Our screens and even our, you know interactions with God individually take us so far. Um, so healthy spirituality involves a community and religion. I mean, and both like relationships. Um, the I is for identity and narrative. And, you know, as a clinician, as a good therapist, you know, people's narrative That's is right. essential. Some good narrative therapy. Um, yeah. And, uh, yes. The, the, my podcast guest last week, Richie Davidson, who's a renowned uh, neuroscientist, um, offers a practice on getting insight into your narrative um, to reflect, to understand, like, is that shaming? Like, you might be the source of your own anxiety. You know, if you're Ooh. shaming yourself through your narrative, really helpful. Mm. Re- but it's so empowering and to realize you have agency over the story you tell your lives. And, and not all of us have had the opportunity to be with a good therapist right. who helps us sort out our narrative. And gosh... Wouldn't that be cool if pastors did that? Mm-hmm. You know, really helped shape their congregation's narrative, um, shaped a narrative that you are all members of this community. You are all active participants in God's ongoing work, and God needs your strengths. You know, what are your strengths? This church needs your strengths. Yeah. I mean, yes, for the church, yeah. for the world. Like tell, like help. You know, I, pastors can do that. Mm-hmm. They're equipped to do that. They have. A darn powerful story. I think it's called oh, the gospel. Um, and, you know, <laughs> when we locate our lives in that greater story, yeah, we find purpose. Mm-hmm. So V is for vocation and purpose. Like healthy spirituality provides a telos, provides a goal and a purpose for us. And um, I really think the church has not maximized its resources to help people find purpose and calling in Christ. Um, And I love talking to pastors about spiritual health because I I will say these days and age, they're like, oh my God, I need to know mental health because all my people have mental health issues. I'm like, you know, that's actually not your job, but your job is to tend to their spiritual health. Mm -hmm. And when you help shape their narrative in a loving story, when you help them identify a sense of vocation and purpose, um, when you create a sense of belonging in community, you provide spiritual practices. Like a lot of those littler anxiety, depression, mental health issues are going to start to resolve. And if they don't, you need to refer to them. Um, but your domain, you're not a mental health practitioner, but you have so many resources at hand within the scriptures, within as a community of practice, and people are desperate for mm-hmm. them. So those are five of the six facets yeah. of spiritual health and the last being ethics and virtue right. because and we, we know more and more understand moral injury that like people really need to clarify their values what's right what's wrong because that contributes to a cohesive narrative and purpose and and these days and days especially young people who aren't necessarily socialized into any belief system you know again in la like not 
probably a little different than the South. Yeah, I mean, um, it's crazy how far we've come. You know, it's uh, in a post postmodern world. You know, what a sneaky lie to tell people that there is no truth and that everybody can just decide whatever they want to for whatever they want and that that's going to breed health. You know, it's very, very sad. And I get it. I get it. There, especially being in the South and living in California, moving back to the South. And there's a lot of church hurt. You know, there's a lot of religious trauma. There's a lot of trauma all around the world, you know, and, and trauma, right? It's just like sin in the world, sin happening to you, your own sin affecting you, the brokenness in the world. Mm-hmm. But um, I think when it comes back down to it, if you if you are meeting with someone to help you with mental health, if you are meeting with a pastor um, to help you with your spiritual health and, and you know, holistically treating, then it, at the end of the day, it comes back to what which I love about the Thrive Lens is that you're just responsible for you. You know, you, you, we can't really change anything outside of about right here. <laughs> you know, yeah, like right. we our, can contribute <laughs> and offer. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We can, and, we can, we can make, we can make systemic changes by changing ourselves. I'm not saying that we can't right, impact the world right. in a positive way. Yeah. It, and it's, it, and I think that's the scary part about psychology. And maybe you would say this too, is, is like the push of, when it comes to trust your gut or, um, you know, my Mm -hmm. mental health, no one matters more than my mental health or Mm -hmm. my boundaries, you know, don't matter to anyone. It's, it's like, it's a, it's a swing to the other side for me where now all of a sudden it's just me that's, that matters and it's my safety that matters. And I have to feel good about everything. And, and if, if you disagree with my truth or the thing that I'm passionate about right in the second, then now you've offended me or it's hate speech or whatever. And it's like, man, you've, you know, we've done a good job to come a long way in psychology to educate Mm -hmm. the church and Mm -hmm. people on trauma and mental health. And then all of a sudden we just took like a, the last five years, it feels like we took such a sharp left on some things that I'm like, oh, we got to kind of, got to find some balance. Do you feel that too? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's like, you know, independence, pursuit of happiness, self-reliance are like foundational to, you know our country as America. And I think we've taken that too far. And I love little quips. And and one of recent is like, you know, well-being starts with we. Mm -hmm. That's good. Not I. I like that. Yeah. But we can't be well without a we. We Yeah. That's right. Do you think uh, reciprocating self 101? (laughs) Oh, 100 percent. Yeah, I think. And that. Go ahead. I'll shut up. Oh, no. And I was going to say, you know, a check I've become to use um, because I get really nervous about like, oh, pursue joy. Like say that to a narcissist. Like what brings you joy? Like that scares the living daylights out of me. Um, And that's why that last facet is ethics and virtue. And and also why with and for. And with and for is a great check. Mm -hmm. Like if if this is self-care so I can be with and for others, like a greater end than myself, that's healthy self-care. Mm. But when self-care is like, oh, I need another bubble bath. Oh, cancel culture. No, we still, we need to be with people. There are moments where we have to draw hard boundaries. Issues of abuse, you know, justice, we have to. This is not a get along with everybody. But it's a, it's that dialectic, that and of like, how can I be myself and be there and be like, you know, I can only interact with you at this level because this is hurtful. Yeah. I'm not canceling you, but... I'm going to be me. I'm going to respect you, but I may not choose vulnerability in this situation. Yeah, that's super good. That's that's beautifully said. I think if we look to Christ, 
one of the things that, man, this is such a beautiful conversation, but like going back to what we're talking about where you're, you don't matter, right? Only Jesus is to be seen. You're not to be seen. Jesus doesn't even do that. You know, like he gives all his credit to God. He says, I, I'm not doing any of these things. It's only by my father. These are not my ideas. It's only his, like he is emptying himself and humbling himself and giving God credit. Mm-hmm. But his fully human self, along with his f- fully God self, matters to God. Like he, how he, when he dies, when he goes to the cross, when he decides to let the you know the betrayal happen, he he had very strategic things that he was doing. There were boundaries. There were hey, not now. Hey, don't tell anybody. Oh, okay, now you can. Um, oh, you want to kill me and throw me off the the cliff? Nah, not right now. Like you know, like oh, the the there's a thousand people gathered and the disciples are like, this is awesome. He's like, I'm gonna go pray at the boat because if they follow me and get dependent on me, like there's all these stories where people get super annoyed with Jesus about his agenda because he had mm-hmm. one, mm-hmm. and that's right. not him being selfish. He was the epitome of I'm walking in the spirit. I know who my father says I am and my being matters as his being matters. And so I'm considering, you know, we and me, you and I at the same time, every time and going, how do I apply this? Now we screw that up because we're broken. Um, (laughs) You know, we, Jesus made it so that God sees us now how we will eventually be. And mm-hmm. so thank God, God sees us fully restored and fully healthy and fully thriving, right. but we're right. not yet, you know, we're no, still we're in this earth. And as Galatians says, yeah. this evil world. And, uh, I think the work you're doing is helping people and giving all of us clinicians al- and pastors alike, um, resources mm-hmm. and tools to mm-hmm. applying that to our lives and walking that mm-hmm. out in our lives and so, Dr. King, I just thank you so much for all the work you're doing and at the Thrive Center and at Fuller and the work you did in my life and in the classes and the time that we had together. Um, it means a lot. And so um, we don't always get to see. I know as a, as a clinician and as a person who pours into people, you don't always get to see that. Right. So, um, you know, I, I, I want you to see that what you do and what you um, pour your life into has such a huge impact in my life. And then in the thousands of people that I'm impacting and, and I want people to hear that everybody out there listening to this has that same story that, that well, the seeds you're planting can impact people for generations and you will never know it, but man, God is going to use you. Absolutely. You never, and you say you, you hold on to hope, right? There's a promise, you know, God doesn't waste anything. Um, and you never know. So we're, stewards of our pain and our loss and our suffering and we hold on that all will be redeemed even if that is not so apparent to us in in the given moment and and we accompany people and their pain we can't make it better i mean even as a trained therapist sometimes you can't you do great work but just to be with others allowing them to experience love is so life-giving Absolutely. Um, And thank God there's people like you trained to actually really effectively help people in their pain because being human is painful, but it's also joyful. And, um, you know, I think when we can be present to our pain, it it becomes another lens for revealing what matters most. Mm -hmm. So I I always say like joy is double fisted. There's that joy of celebrating what is and praising God for 
what's been realized and those things we're so grateful for and wonderful. And then there's that hand sometimes we raise as a fist in anger of like, this isn't redeemed. This has been broken. It's marred. It's lost or, or in lament of like, I've lost this person or this relationship. I can have confidence that all will be redeemed. But right now I have to hold this hand of lament. Yeah. And so good. as a good therapist, Sometimes we can't raise that hand alone. We need others to help raise those hands for us. And I, I think that is a, a beautiful image of community of when, you know, I can't be in touch with the joy I have in Christ and the lament is so heavy. I, I need others alongside me to, to raise those hands with me. Um, and, and that's a really powerful thing we can be as reciprocating humans. Yeah. It's beautiful. Thank you for your time today. And where can people get your information? Where can they can they follow you on social media or what websites can they go to to kind of check out your stuff? Well, thank you for asking. So yes, the Thrive Center is at thethrivecenter.org. And then social media for the Thrive Center is hashtag, well, at Thrive Center, um, Instagram, Twitter, um, LinkedIn, and, and I can be found at Dr. Pam King. So D-R-P-A-M-K-I-N-G on those same um, awesome. platforms. And, and we'll, then we'll link those release. in the show notes. Awesome. And then the Within 4 podcast is um, the tricky thing. These are the things that, you know, Ask Why is really good, but it's with ampersand for, not spelling it out for. Um, and... It is on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, Amazon Music, or or the Thrive website. So love you to check it out and share it. Awesome. It's helpful. Well, thank you guys for listening. God bless you and yeah. have a good week. <laughs>